Anyway, let's have, a, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Before I get myself into more trouble. <laughs> Dear Father in heaven, we ask and pray that you would show us a new story, a new vision of who we are in your sight. We ask this all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So when I was doing my graduate work, when I was in seminary, for those who know what that term means, it's simply graduate school for those of us who become pastors, uh, I was told something that I had never been told before. I was like 23, 24 years old, and I had never been told it before by anybody that I could remember. Somewhere along the line, during that time in seminary, I actually had some classmates that told me that I was smart. No one laughs. That's a good sign. (laughs) That they actually told me I was smart. I had never been told that my whole life. I was in a class, and one of the things we had to do in that class was we had to um, get on one of these message boards, and we had to share our reflections on the content of the class. And so we had to fulfill so many uh, paragraphs and words, and every week we had to, you know, fill out so many things. And I had classmates tell me, we can't wait to see the messages that you put on there because you have such great insight, and you articulate it so well, and you have really intelligent feedback. And, you know, I'm I'm not trying to tell you that I'm all that smart. And that's not, that's not why I'm sharing that, because if you didn't know by now, you probably already have your opinion of me whether I'm smart or not. And some classmate of mine in seminary is not going to turn you a different direction. Nevertheless, they told me that I had intelligence, and I had never been told that before. And do you know what that did for me? You know what it did for me? It gave me incredible confidence. I was like, you know what, maybe I do know something. Maybe I do have something to contribute. See, all before that, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I felt like I was dumb, but when you hang around people like Cameron, you know Cameron, right? Everyone knows Cameron. Most of you know Cameron, who, who had to slip out here. Cameron is wicked smart, isn't he? And so when you hang around people like him, you're like, oh, I'm not that smart. But when I was told that I had some level of intelligence... It gave me the confidence to do well in school. Prior to that, I had always been an average student, mediocre, you know, getting just B's and stuff. But after that, I excelled even my dad's GPA in seminary. Amen? Yeah, almost straight A's. You know, the reason I share this is because every single one of us has told ourselves a story about ourselves. Every single one of us has this dialogue that goes on in our minds and in our hearts that we have told ourselves about who we are. We've told ourselves, you know what, I'm not that intelligent because I didn't do well in school. Or we've told ourselves, you know, I'm going to be the funny guy around here because that's what gets the most laughs. Or we've told ourselves that what I look like is what's most important about my identity for or against whether I look good or bad. We have these tapes that we play in our minds. 
And throughout the course of our lives, we sort of grow into and we live out those identities. And they're based upon a lot of things. They're based upon the things that others have told us about us. There are things that we have told ourselves about ourselves. But the point is that all of us have this, this tape that plays in our minds. And sometimes we limit ourselves because that's not who I am, we say to ourselves. But I want to invite you to, to, to recognize, and then we're going to unpack this a little bit this morning, that there is a story that God tells of us that I would dare say is probably a lot different than the story that than we tell of ourselves. Notice in the book of Psalms, which was written by a man by the name of David, this particular psalm was. It's in Psalm chapter 139, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to jump around a little bit in this chapter. But notice what David, he was a king of Israel, he said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Now that word for acquainted in the original language actually has a stronger sense to it. It's actually the word to know. It's actually a word that is used in the biblical sense when it's speaking about a husband knowing his wife. It's a very intimate knowledge. It's not just a mere acquaintance. The point is that God knows us very intimately. He knows our our very being. He knows us from our head to our toe. He knows everything about us. He is intimately acquainted with us. Now check out, a few verses later, David goes on to explain this. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am what? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. David's saying, God, you know me. You know every little detail about me. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. So God was able to perceive even before we were physically formed. He saw us. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. You see, God looks at us, and he sees all the potential that we possess. He could see the future that could unfold before us, the future that could be ours. And he created us with capacities to be special, unique individuals that have something to contribute to the world. You know, all of us have this unique personality that God expressly designed for us to live out. And if you weren't you, the universe would not be all that the universe is supposed to be. Some of us want to be other people, don't we? It's funny because this this week I was interacting with a friend of mine. His name is Ty. Some of you probably know who he is. He's a very well-known writer within our particular community of faith, and he's a good friend of mine. And he and I have been dialoguing about uh, something that he is trying to grapple with theologically. And he sent me a paper that he wrote, and I read it. I said, I think you'll enjoy this paper that I wrote on this topic. And so I sent it to him, and I was sitting in prayer meeting the other night with Oscar and Bonnie and Roger, and my phone rings, and I look down, and it's Ty. 
and I, and I text him. You guys probably didn't see me do that, did you? I very covertly texted him as we were sitting there. I said, I got to call you a little bit later. And so I called him right after prayer meeting, and he said, Sean, that paper you sent to me, unbelievable. I am just like salivating over it. It was so good. And then he said to me, man, I so wish that I could write like you. And I said, dude, you're not going to believe this. Every time I read your books, I just think to myself, oh, man, if I could only write like Ty. So here we are wishing we were the other person. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know what? There is an important place for all of us. God created and fashioned all of us, all of us, to be unique and to live out the gifts that he's given to us. And he sees so much potential in us. And he has such great plans for us. This idea here that he says that uh, all that, all, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet they were none of them. It's not as though God is, has, has this predestination, like there's only one path and he controls us. This is what God sees of us to have great potential. But you know what happens? You and I are born, and then life happens. And all this potential that we have as we're formed there in the womb, all this potential suddenly gets suppressed because other people act in certain ways towards us. And I got news for you. I don't know if you realized it, but your parents weren't perfect. Your parents weren't perfect. And even if they were wonderful people, they were still, they still were flawed and they had imperfections. And our siblings... Amen? They're not perfect. Amen? And they act towards us in certain ways, and we're told certain things, and we become certain people because we try on different masks to see if this one will look good so that others will approve of me. And pretty soon, we don't even know who we are because we've lived much of our lives trying to be who we think other people want us to be. And it's a wonder that any of us really knows any of the rest of us. Like, it's a wonder that we even know ourselves. And so what happens is, notice what this prophet Jeremiah says. He says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. What's a tablet? Anyone have a tablet here today? Aha, Aaron has a tablet. What's a tablet? It is a data storage device unit, isn't it? You put information on that. And written within our emotional, psychological experience is this sin, the sin that happens to us, and then the sin that you and I participate in ourselves. And every single experience we've ever had is stored on the tablet of our hearts. Every single thing that has been done to us and that we have done to others, even though we may not remember all of it, is written like on a tablet of, uh, electronic tablet, except it's written there on our hearts. And we have all of this damage, and all of this pain, and all of this, this, this suffering that, we, we, that has happened to us, and that we participate in. And we live our lives trying to figure out, who is it that God wants me to be? Who is it that God sees I could be. 
Paul comes along, the Apostle Paul, and he makes this outlandish statement. It's so, it's so outlandish that it's a wonder that it even makes sense. Check out what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Actually, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart, before we go there, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. So we are, we are pathological liars on a level that we're not even consciously aware of. We just move around from day to day, again, presenting these masks of who we think other people want us to be. And all the while, we're trying to figure out, by God's grace, who he sees we are. Notice this passage in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says this, God, check this out. He's speaking of Abraham now. He says, God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's a really strange way to put it. You see, what God does is he looks at us and he sees the potential and he acts toward us on the basis of our potential, not on the basis of who we are right now. You know, you and I do that on a human level as well. We have to. Just last night, we were playing guitar for family worship and Camden is trying to learn those chords. And he gets so frustrated. Oh, man. He can't get his fingers right, and he can't move his, the cords quickly enough, and he just wants to give up. And what does a parent do? A parent says, no, 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 Cameron, you're doing great. You're doing great. That's what, hopefully, by God's grace, good parenting does. You see, we see as parents what those children can become, and it's because we see it of them, and when they embrace the vision we have of them, they live into it. They understand their potential in, in, by God's grace, and they live into it. And you and I have to do this as well on a fundamental level with other human relationships. You see, we have to be willing to put aside the way that people have wronged us. If we acted towards other people strictly on the basis of the way they treat us, we would never have any flourishing human relationships. But the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sin. And so we have to put those wrongs aside and we have to say, I'm going to interact with you on the basis of what you can become. And God acts this way towards us. He looks at us and he doesn't see selfishness. He doesn't see brokenness. He doesn't see pain. He sees great potential. He sees a child that is desperately loved by him. You know, we talked a little bit about this now a month and a half ago or so, but you remember this, this story, perhaps? You've heard of this person called Job? Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, those who were here? And, and there's this, this meeting going on in heaven, and it's God and, and this, these angels and these messengers, and God is standing there, and he looks down, and he says to Satan, check out what he says to Satan. Then the Lord asks Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless. A man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. I don't know about you, but if, if I had been Job and I had been like a fly on the wall there, listening to God talk about me that way, I would have been like, you talking about me, God? Is it, are you, 
You, have, you sure you have the right Job here? But if you could be a fly on the wall in heaven and you could hear what God says of you, I dare say that you would probably learn to live into the reality of what God sees of you. I have to admit that I engage in a lot of what in the recovery community is called stinking thinking, right? I have this constant tape going in my mind about the negative things that I do, the negative things that I say, the negative person that I am. It's just like a tape that constantly goes. And I realized about a week and a half ago, I woke up one morning, and I realized that I just have this underlying sense that I don't deserve to be treated by God in a loving way. And I'm not saying that in a way that like, oh yeah, we're all unworthy and all that. I'm saying in a real way, like why would God ever do anything good for me? Does he, he knows all the bad things that I've done, all the bad things that I do. He knows my selfish heart. He knows my pride and my arrogance and my manipulative behavior. And he knows that I try to get by doing as little as possible to help my wife out. But I have to, I have to see the vision that God sees of me. I have to understand that if I were to, if I were to step into that circle, I were to hear him talking about me, that he would speak with great joy in his heart. And he'd be like, yeah, have you seen Sean lately? Have you seen all the good things he's doing? Have you seen how, how, how kind he's treating other people? And I'd be like, God, you can't be talking about me. That's not about me, is it? But I would dare say that if I could hear what God says of me, if I could hear the story that God is telling of me, it would give me a little boost in my confidence. And I would say, wow, if God thinks that's a, that about me, I can step into that reality. I said it a minute ago, but God relates to us on the basis of our potential, not on the basis of our problems. That's really awesome news because that's the relational dynamic that God operates on. His confidence in us actually creates confidence in us. His faith and trust in us is the very mechanism by which you and I can live to the potential that he has created for us. I was on Instagram this week, and my sister-in-law, Shelly, some of you have met Shelly. She'll be here the last Sabbath in December, so treat her well. I've told you about her, I think, she doesn't currently believe in God, but she understands some of these principles. This is what she posted on Instagram the other day. She had heard this at a conference that she was at. She said, it said, if you could see in a vision what you could become, you would rise up and never be the same. Isn't that really cool? What if somebody told you today, they came in here and they said, you know what, I've seen your future and you're going to be the president of the United States you would say, no, thank you, right? But if they say, you're going to be the president of the United States, and it was like you couldn't, like, there was no way around that that was going to be true, like that was going to be true, I would dare say that you would have so much confidence, uh, such a confidence boost, that you would start walking around acting like it, in a nice way, right? I mean, that's how presidents conduct themselves, right, in a nice way? 
But you would, you, would, you would walk with a certain confidence because you had been told what you could or would become. And God speaks to us, and he says, I don't see selfishness and pride and mean-spiritedness. I don't see brokenness and pain. I see a precious, precious child of mine that has so much potential that this universe could use because if you're not you, the universe loses out. My family loses out. God's kingdom loses out. And so he has created within us the capacity to be this beautiful child of his. You know, I've been reading this book that is by a young lady by the name of Nadia Murad. And uh, she actually won the Nobel Peace Prize this year. And I came upon her book because I listened to a podcast recently that was probably the most incredible podcast I've ever heard. It's not suitable for small children. Let me just tell you that straight up. But it's about... um, The title of the podcast is called Caliphate. Sounds like a very dark topic, right? And it's on ISIS. And this girl, Nadia Murad, her story is similar to what they feature on this podcast. It is about a group of people in Iraq called the Yezidi people. Anyone ever heard of them? This is a small tribe, you know, tens of thousands of people, but it's not a, it's not a big tribe. A, a small tribe that has always been persecuted in Iraq for the last centuries, you know, 800, 900 years. And when ISIS came into power in Iraq, they actually went through all these Yezidi villages, and they just committed genocide, basically. What they would do, however, is they would take the young girls, and they would take them as their slaves. We do have one child in here, so I'm going to avoid spelling it out all that explicitly. But they would take these young ladies, and they would capture them to be their slaves. They believed, through an interpretation of the Quran, that they were granted the right by Muhammad to take these girls and to fill in the blank. And so what they would do is they would, they would kidnap these girls, and they would sell them from person to person to do what they deemed they want to do with them. And in this podcast, it details the story of this one young lady that after three years, she was kidnapped when she was 13. After three years, she was rescued by this gentleman who was a Yezidi who would go and he saved like three or 400 Yezidi girls and he would bring them back to their homeland and what was left of it. And on this podcast, they they interviewed the family of this one young lady. Actually, she had just literally returned after being rescued. And uh, after the things that were done to her, she was basically, it was almost like she was demon-possessed. Couldn't even talk to her intelligibly. She was now 16 years old. And uh, apparently what happened is when she came back, she had been brainwashed by ISIS to the extent that They told her that everybody in the world had converted to Islam. That there was no 
Yezidi people anymore. They'd all converted, and the Islamic State ruled the whole world. And so when she came back to her family and they told her, no, no, this isn't true, they, they just actually, actually cannot psychologically and emotionally understand that. And the reporter for the podcast actually took out her phone and she said, no, I want to show you on my phone that the holy mountain called Sinjar was actually taken back by the American forces. And the young girl just looked at it and she could not believe it. She just wouldn't believe it. And she said, unless I can go to Mount Sinjar and see it with my own eyes, I won't believe it. Because ISIS had, had, had uh, rule over it. One of the things that they told her, because they knew the Yazidi culture, which is not Islamic, is that if a young lady is um, given away before her marriage, then she is actually stoned by their people. And so what they would actually tell her is that even if you were to run away and go back to your people, they would kill you because you are now considered to be damaged and evil and sinful. And so they just brainwashed her, telling her who she was, telling her that she was broken and damaged and she was not able to be who she had been before. And so these were the lies that they kept telling her. She had actually been sold by nine different men over and over and over again, just used for whatever they wanted. But she finally was able to break free. She came back and she was talking with this reporter. And the reporter left. And um, a few months later, she got an email from this family. This whole story was detailed in the New York Times, by the way. And they sent her this video. And they just played on the podcast. I tell you, this episode, by the way, is the single most moving podcast episode I've ever heard. But she's, they send her this video, she opens up the video, and it's just a picture of this young lady. She's on Mount Sinjar, and she's wearing just a long white dress. What had happened is there had been some people, some men in the Yezidi culture that had been working, working tirelessly to get the, the philosophy changed in Yazidi culture that these young ladies, many of whom were rescued, were not damaged. They were not sinful. In fact, they even were urging them to consider these young ladies, because of the challenges they went through, to be considered holy, even more holy, because of their experience. And so this young lady is there on the mountain in her white dress. As I heard that, I just thought, man, this has such huge biblical overtones. She had entered into a new story. She had entered into what, what God sees of each one of us. God doesn't see a broken, damaged, sinful, selfish, arrogant, proud-filled person who deserves death. God sees in each one of us a pure, precious child of his. And when, if you and I could just see that vision, if you and I could just understand that he sees that about us, it would empower us 
to reach all the potential that he sees in us. And so I want to live in that light. What about you? Want to live in the light of what God sees of you? You want to live in the light of the faith and confidence that he has in us? Begins with us giving, up, giving him our hearts. And we're going to sing about that right now. As we give our hearts over to God. Here's our heart, Lord. So, let's stand as we sing this together. Give me a second to transition my device here.